Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. It is my privilege and pleasure to introduce to you our panel discussion of the evening. I'm just gonna briefly introduce them to you. Some of them you know well, and some of them maybe you don't, but they've been with us the majority of the weekend. So to my left, we have Professor Amy Roberts. She teaches catechetics here at the university. She is a beloved professor by all, and she's working on getting her doctoral degree from the JP2 Institute in Australia. So please join me in welcoming Professor Roberts. Next, we have Dr. Deborah Savage. Dr. Savage is the director of the Master in Pastoral Ministry program at the University of St. Thomas and is a professor of theology and philosophy at the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity in St. Paul's, Minnesota. She is well-versed in the theological and philosophical anthropology concerning the male and female genius. She also has recognized she also has a recognized scholar of Pope St. John Paul II's many works and has written on his understanding of human work, Christian feminism, and the dignity and vocation of women. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Deborah Savage. Next, we have Dr. Donald Ashey. He has been a professor of theology here at the university since 1998. He has his doctor degree in sacred and moral theology from Santa Croce in Rome. He has been giving conferences, papers, and articles on theology of the body for quite some time, and he has married with six children. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Donald Ashey. Next to Dr. Ashey, we have Dr. Pia De Seleni. Dr. Pia De Seleni is the Associate Dean of the Augustan Institute in Orange County. She is an expert in issues relating to women's health, life issues, and the new feminism. Her work has appeared in national and international publications, including the Wall Street Journal and, the, and Journal Europe. For her groundbreaking dissertation, Analyzing Feminist Theories, in light of St. Thomas Aquinas' teachings, Dr. Seleni received the 2001 Award of the Pontifical Academies from Pope John Paul II. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Pia de Seleni. <laughs> Next, we have Dr. Mikhail Volstein. Dr. Volstein is a Max Seckler Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University and a distinguished fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He was the founding president of the International Theological Institute in Gaming, Austria. He received his doctorate from the University of Dallas, his SSL from the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome, and his PhD in New Testament and Christian origins from Harvard University. Wallstein's extensive published works include the new translation of John Paul II's Man and Woman He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Wallstein. Next to him, we have our own Franciscan University's Dr. William Newton. 
Dr. Newton is a professor of theology and the chair of the faculty for the Franciscan University of Steubenville's Austria program. He has published articles in numerous journals, including Crisis Magazine, and he is the author of the book, A Civilization of Love, The Catholic Vision for Human Society. Newton received his doctorate from the John Paul II Institute in Australia and is a founding member of the Aquinas Institute of Ireland. Please join me in welcoming Dr. William Newton. And last, but certainly not least, Dr. Stephen Samut. Dr. Samut is a professor of psychology here at Franciscan University. His PhD is in neuroscience, specifically studying psychiatric disorders. He has spent 20 years in research, and he is most interested in integrating faith and science with a special focus on showing how what we are learning in science continues to affirm our knowledge of the design of the Creator. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Samut. So the flow of the evening is that this is a totally audience-run panel. So I'm just going to open the floor to you. If you have a question, please stand in front of the microphone so that our panel can hear you. They will decide who should answer the panel until the question is over, then we can continue. If there is a moment of pause where no questions are being asked, I have a handful of questions that were placed in the basket throughout the weekend um, of different people that have written down questions. So I will ask a question to break the ice. <laughs> In Gaudium et Spes, it says that man can only discover himself through the, through the sincere gift of himself. But what does it truly mean to discover oneself? How many days do we have? I'm nominating you. <laughs> We're passing the ball between ourselves. It's just a new form of soccer. We're still discovering ourselves. I can say something. Okay. First thing I, that comes to mind is to realize that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says that we can't really have a direct impression of our souls, right? And so um, we access ourselves in some ways in the same way that we access others through our experience. Now that, that should lead us then to discover uh, the potencies that we have, the features that we have that constitute a, ourselves as persons. But the other thing that I want, I would, the reason I wanted to speak is because there's another opportunity to share with you why was anthropology. He talks about, he says for one thing that lived experience is the single most important philosophical category. Lived experience means conscious experience. And he says that human subjectivity which is for him is really the metaphysical anthropology of Aquinas, but just in different language and studied through different means. It can be divided into two fundamental dynamisms. Something happens in man, and man acts. So something happens in man is like what happens if someone cuts you off on the freeway, you know, you get mad, right? Or hunger, or feelings even, really. Man acts is when we actually exercise our wills in a certain direction. Um, so the, these, I, I guess I bring this up because he's really clear that um, 
we can actually know each other in our own subjectivity. So coming to know myself in Waitiwa's account is really a process of coming to possess myself and then govern myself so that I can determine myself through the actions that I take, become whom I'm meant to be. So um, it's not an answer to who am I, in a way, but it's, it's a, in his um, thought, it's a developmental process whereby we gradually gain possession of ourselves. And it relates to this question because you cannot give what you do not have, so you can't make of yourself a gift to another unless you're first in possession of yourself. That would be one thing. <laughs> well, actually, that was several things. But. Yeah, to continue that line of development, <clears throat> it would be important to note that he says the word person enables us to see something more than the mere individual or the nature. So if we want to know what we are, that would be in terms of our humanity, our human nature. But who we are is where the person and the self would come more to the center and into focus. And uh, in the Theology of the Body, when he talks about the person, he says the essence of personal existence is living with and for others. So what I am uh, in my humanity might be other-directed, but especially in my personhood or who I am, it's got to be other-centered or other-directed. And the exercise of my subjectivity towards that other is most properly gift or the dynamic of love. So to really actualize the potential to be with and for others, it's to love, but in the form of self-gift. And I, I learn not just what I am and what I'm capable of, but as he says, the essence of my personal existence in and through those others for whom I'm now existing. If I could add something here, and please keep in mind I'm significantly outnumbered by theologians here. Um, um, the aspect, I can't talk from the perspective that the other people are speaking here because it is not my area of expertise. But where I can talk from my own area of expertise is that one of the ways of getting to know about ourselves is by understanding how God created us to be in terms of our own physiology. And I think that plays a very significant part in our understanding of who we are as man, as woman. And I think uh, Dr. Savage uh, spoke significantly in this regard and in a number of uh, her talks. Um, so even from a physiological perspective, uh, helping us understand, and I think what I'm trying to say here is specifically, being a man, being a woman, is not some artifact that is up there. It is tangible, it is feelable, it is something you can actually study. You can, you, you can see it in the way God created us. He made us physical beings. In terms of also what both Dr. Savage and um, Dr. Ashley have just said, we, in terms of who we are and what our function is, that, is a, that goes beyond the physiology. But in the sciences themselves, we can actually see the consequences of understanding of who we are and who we are meant to be. So for example, you will see the benefits of um, altruistic behaviors. Okay, so 
if something obviously is, is, is beneficial for human behavior, and what that is telling us to do is telling us about ourselves is that that behavior uh, is something that is potentially necessary for our continued growth and developing and understanding who we are. So I can't give you the depth that my colleagues here can give you from a theological perspective. But what I'm trying to say, and, and I think this was something that uh, Haley also brought up in, as she was introducing me, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is this whole idea that in creation we see what God wanted us to be. If we have our eyes open, I mean, if those of you that are familiar, familiar with St. Bonaventure, uh, soul's journey into God, you will see how in creation, in the physical universe, in who I am as a man, who you are as a woman, um, you can see what God intended of us, at least from a very, at least beginning perspective. If I could add something from Shakespeare, from Romeo and Juliet, that there's an amazing passage, uh, as, as Shakespeare in general is just so amazing. The balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet is on the balcony in their own garden. Romeo has snuck in at the danger of death because that's the enemy family. And Juliet, he overhears her. She doesn't know that he is there. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo of all things? Why be member of the enemy family? This is when she finds out that he is, in fact, deadly for her. Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. This is exactly who I am. And then uh, what I think is one of the funniest lines in Shakespeare, Romeo saying, aside, without her hearing it, shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this? but he decides to hear more. Um, and then no, notice how she goes back and forth between the name being nothing and the name being everything. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, she says about Romeo, though not a Montague, what's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. So names are nothing. But then she says, oh, be some other name. As if it were a newness of life and this is a fundamental experience that our life is so limited in ourselves. There's a newness of life. Be some other name. But then she turns against names again. What's in a name that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet? 
So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes, that is owns, possesses, without that title, Romeo, doff thy name. Doff is what you do with a hat when you take it off, or a jacket, is that right? You doff hats and jackets. Romeo, doff thy name, and now comes the interesting thing. And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. It's fabulous. It's absolutely amazing. But that's the experience of love that you... Um, it is a radical increase of life to be able to leave one's own narrow self and come to be, to belong, to be received with joy by somebody else. It's, that's a road of happiness. I'd like to speak briefly to the lived experience of this. I think um, I'm the proud aunt of 10 nieces and nephews, and um, I find that as I give myself to my nieces and nephews in um, uh, you know, the playing with them, the uh, taking an interest in what they're interested in, reading the books that they're interested in in the moment, um, that I do those things in love and not necessarily because I might want to in that immediate moment, but because I, I desire to um, enrich their lives in some way and, and give them the sense of being valued and loved. And I find that I experience um, an increase of love for them in the act of doing that. Um, and I find that in giving myself away to people in love that I discover things um, about myself that I didn't realize before. Um, sometimes that's a discovery that I'm not as patient as I thought I was, um, but sometimes it's a discovery that um, I, I actually have a gift that I didn't realize that I had. Um, and so I've really discovered that in, in this um, focusing on the other and the reaching out to the other, um, that there can be a, a real enrichment of ourselves that we don't necessarily look for to happen, but that is a, a gift of God um, as we make that gift of ourselves. Thank you. Any other questions? Good evening, I'm Gianna McHenry, and I would like to thank you, uh, first of all, very much for uh, this conference and this experience. Um, everyone's talked a lot about the father, the son, and the woman, and they've talked about the relationship between the mother and the son, 
And as a mother of two daughters, I have a daughter who is 22 and I have a daughter who's 17 who is here with me today and I am mentor mom to Haley. Um, I wondered if, if any of you could just touch a little bit about the woman's role in her relationship with daughters, uh, raising them to be a woman, gift and culture and church. Thank you. <laughs> you talked so beautifully during dinner about Well, <laughs> I say so many things. Maddie? Oh, yeah. Yes, well, um, let me see now. I was going to, I had something to say, now I've forgotten what it was, so I have to, I better do what Dr. Waldstein suggested. It's always good to follow the master. Um, well, I have a daughter who is um, adopted, right? And, um, this, a little bit more detail on that. Um, my husband and I couldn't have our own children, and it was really awful. And then at a certain point, I realized how awful it was. I was already kind of old, even, I'm still kind of old. <laughs> I was somewhat younger then, but anyway. So I um, started to pray. My husband was fine with it. He said, that's okay. We'll be all right. But I couldn't take it. So I prayed and I prayed and I prayed every day, went to holy hours and everything. And one day the phone rang and we got Maddie. The lady said, my daughter's pregnant. And I said, yes, I know why you're calling. And the answer is yes. So, I mean, there's a lot to the story. But Andrew at first said we were too old. And I said, well, then why don't we just move to Florida and buy a couple of rocking chairs and wait it out? And um, in the end, in the end, the decision was mine because at a certain point he talked me out of it and then I said, I realized it was the wrong decision. Anyway, what I'm getting at is that um, the moment when I he said, you go ahead and decide whatever you want to do, we'll do it. There was a calculus that I went through that had nothing to do with pluses or minuses. It was just this recognition that it was the right thing to do to invite life into our family. And what I discovered from that, this is Maddie, she's a little girl, I discovered you can't, I didn't know you could love someone that much, and I also discovered that love grows. I didn't know that either. I thought it was a finite thing, you either love someone or you don't, or some, I don't know what I thought, but it's like she's 13 now, and even though she's 13, I love her even more today than I did, you know, yesterday. So I don't know if this is what you were talking about. Okay. Now, <laughs> oh, good. Um, but in my talk, in my Woman as Prophet, a Feminism for the 21st Century talk, I mentioned um, the implosion of feminism in our culture. Um, we've gone from women's studies where they're the sort of uh, second wave feminists, I think they are, that. Um, they wear really dowdy clothes and Birkenstocks and eat bran muffins, that kind of thing. And then there's the new wave. <laughs> That's just how it's put. The new wave of feminism that one author is calling Lady Gaga feminism. And the Lady Gaga feminists are really eager to take power away from the bran muffin feminists. Those are the you know women that have started women's studies programs and are really 
strident and angry and um, they want to, I don't know, they want to, they're really angry. Okay. And the Lady Gaga feminists, they just want to have sex and wear high heels and lipstick. What I'm getting at there is that what becomes clear as you study that phenomenon that, the I, that feminism as it's understood in the secular culture has no way of transmitting its principles except through ideology. Whereas the feminism that the Catholic Church is promoting, if you will, or we're here to talk about, is a feminism that is transmitted naturally. You don't need to talk about it. I mean, sometimes you do, especially these days, right? You can't just teach your daughter how to bake an apple pie. It's not going to be enough. You've got to help her understand you know, certain things. But to, it's the same way that men learn how to be men from their dads. Women will learn how to be a, a uh, girls will learn how to be a woman from you. Yeah. And this is a big responsibility. Because if you're cranky with your husband a lot, which I've, I'm not speaking from experience or anything. But what I hear, I, sometimes I hear Maddie criticizing Andrew, and she sounds like me, mostly when he's driving. Yes, this is where we have our biggest arguments, but anyway. So you have to, I think, I don't know if am I rambling, I might be, it's kind of been a long day, but I think that, um, like Dr. Waldstein was saying, I think it was you, <laughs> was about the fact that the woman protects her own mystery. I think that was such a profound statement. I know it's from JP2, of course, but to, to help a young girl understand the mystery that she is and that she's the keeper of that mystery. And another thing, and then I'll stop. Um, what John Paul says in one of his essays as Wojtyla is that, in fact, we are irreducible. Who I am is irreducible. I can list all the things that I am, like I, I live in Minnesota, I teach this, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a thing. But I am absolutely, who I am is absolutely incommunicable in that way, right? Irreducible and incommunicable, even to myself. I can't tell you who I am like that, but you can see who I am, which is a scary thing, from watching me talk, from watching me express myself. Who I am shows up. So I would say that a mom's job is to show up as an authentic, as much as possible. It's a process of perfecting ourselves, right? Theoretically. <laughs> to show up as a woman, a real one without fear, without anger, without apology. And she'll learn. Looks like she already did. She's holding your hand. That's very cool. <laughs> I just wanted to add to that. I think part of the problem, too, is that so many mothers are not confident in their femininity. And so, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch will come out with some totally unreasonable clothing garment for eight-year-olds and before, and all the family garments, I mean, sorry, family groups will protest and before they can pull the item, they've sold out. And so mothers who are not confident in their femininity are teaching their, their daughters objectivity. And w my husband and I were just on the beach recently and we saw these uh, teenage girls, tiny bathing suits, and it, it was mom who was taking the selfie of their behinds for 
I don't know, Snapchat or whatever. And so I think it's really important for women, first of all, to be confident in their femininity because if they're not, it's very difficult for them to pass it on to their daughters. And what we see so often are women who measure, <clears throat> they measure their own value in terms of how much they can arouse a man. And so they pass that on to their daughters. And that's what I think is the sad part. And you know, we, we sit back and we talk about all the problems and so forth. And um, there's a lot of healing that needs to take place but in, and to me, to me, it's just incredibly sad because I think that at the end of the day, most parents want what's best for their children. And, but it's so blatant that in some cases, mothers in particular have no idea. And, and they're passing on these values that are just going to continue to objectify their daughters. But they drive, I mean, it's, there's a whole, you know, the fashion industry is, it, it wouldn't be going the direction that's going if they weren't making money. Well, I can chime in as a male, so I'll try. I'm, I'm a father, but what I see both in my work and in, my, in the dynamic of my wife and our three daughters, um, and when I say in my work, it's not just my academic studies, but in relating to you know, the college uh, women of this campus, what they come to me and tell me. Um, so both, again, across the board, I see so many of our daughters afraid to acknowledge that they need love that they need to exist with and for another person because they're so afraid they're not worthy of that love. And this is part of the confidence that uh, we're talking about. And, uh, you know, the best gift I think a mother can give uh, is, is to allow her daughter to accept that she really was made for others and relationship and love and uh, not to be afraid to acknowledge that not to insist on being so autonomous as the only safe route, which is a lot of what modern feminism is teaching our daughters, that the only safety for yourself is to be utterly autonomous because defining yourself in terms of others is just too fragile. Others are not to be trusted. Others may not ever give you what you really deserve. So the mother has to convince or try to communicate to the daughter that the love should and can be forthcoming because it's based on intrinsic value. You don't have to wonder, am I good enough? You're a woman. That's going to be the basis of love that others can see in you. And I like the part about, you know, the, in the, again, the master of her own mystery in the Song of Songs. One thing I like to say about the bride in the Song of Songs <clears throat> is that she's so convincing to the bridegroom because she's convinced of her own dignity and her own worth. He can see it so readily because she's built up and convinced herself of it. And I think for John Paul II, ultimately, that conviction for, for both men and women, but for women is gonna become uh, in, their, in their love of Christ, right? If you understand how lovable you are through the merciful love of the Father that Christ has shown to you, you don't accept others ignoring it and denying it and saying you're not lovable because you've been convicted of it in your very heart uh, by the Father's merciful love. And so the mother should point first of all to God the Father and his merciful love. And then hopefully there's a good father around to be an analogous example of that. And you, you can complete it in, in those terms. Thank you. Any other questions? 
Hi, um, thank you for taking the time to entertain our questions. Um, I sort of had a question of epistemology. Um, I'm wondering about if knowing in any way is gendered. So are there certain things that a woman can claim to know that man in his experience can't know or vice versa? And I know it's hard to have that discussion without asking the question, you know, well, what is knowledge? But I'm just curious. I don't have much to say, so I'll go first. Um, <laughs> a man cannot know what it is to be woman. So for sure, a woman knows something a man does not. Absolutely. Um, not that women can know things that men can't know and vice versa, but I think that there's a complementarity. And so my research, I started with um, Carl Stern's book, The, the Flight from Woman. I, yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, and so <laughs> that, that's what prompted me because he says everything that's wrong with the world is that we've left out the feminine. And he starts, it's, it's epistemology, and he starts with Descartes, and Descartes, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And so he, he points out that this way of knowing is completely autonomous, it's pure ratio and self-contained. And so it never encounters the other, there is no encounter with truth with a capital T. And so, in the, um, and so in the epistemological schema of Aquinas, it's really leaving out the intellectus. So I, my research was based on saying that um, while men and women have, both have intellectus and ratio, uh, loosely speaking, intellect and ratio, reason. Um, while men and women both have intellectus and ratio, that women perhaps are more disposed to the virtues of intellectus and men to ratio. And Aquinas says that men and women are, f are supposed to form a social union. And it's not, and he specifically says it's not just about procreation. It's, it's about the longer view. And he, he cites a proverb from, I think it's an old Jewish proverb about the creation of Eve, and he says, you know, Eve was not created from Adam's head to rule over him, nor from his foot to be ruled by him, but from his side to rule with him. So it's this idea of this social union, and for Aquinas, everything is ordered towards knowing, ultimately knowing God. It doesn't matter what you're called to in life. So I, I think that there are some aspects of intellectus that women biologically through their sexually differentiated bodies would be more disposed to because intellectus, as much as some schools of Thomistic thought like to talk about agent intellect, intellectus is characteristically receptive or actively receptive. It's a decision to be receptive. And I see that embodied in Mary in that first chapter of Luke. It's a decision to receive, right? And <clears throat> Ratio, it's that discursive. It's going from point A to point B to point C. It's, we need that, right? And so I think that, um, to me, there, there's a lot to extrapolate from Aquinas' anthropology and, and epistemology, but to say that there's a complementarity at the intellectual level as well, uh, that, that the biological, the complementarity at the biological level points to a complementarity at the intellectual level. I'd like to hear from the Hatfields, because as far as I remember, You weren't in it. You were in the competition. There was a competition by one of the households uh, to, they had to, couples had to, because uh, there was a competition where they got couples, they asked me and my wife, we pointed out the issues. Because we were going to win, and if I'm not going to win. Uh, the couples had to, um, they were asked questions which, you know, wouldn't be necessarily questions that would be obvious that one would know the answer of the other's preference and things like this. Yeah. 
And um, I, just, I was hoping they were in it because I wanted to see whether the, the woman was more accurate in judging the man's thoughts on things than the man was on the woman. Uh, only because it seems to me that, um, again, in St. Thomas, there's, he, he is open to the idea of a, a connatural judgment about things, which comes from affinity. So not from seeing the principles and then deriving conclusions from it, but being able to judge because you are somehow one with the other. So for example, the, the, the gift of wisdom, spiritual gift of the gift of the Holy Spirit comes from charity because you are made one with God. You are able to judge as if you were God, you might say. You make God's judgments on the world because you're connected with him. Now, if it's true that the woman through her genius has a certain affinity to the person, and sensitivity to the person, I'm wondering whether that cashes out as giving her a greater con-natural judgment. And that's basically what we mean when we talk about female intuition. Because intuition is not working from principles to conclusion, it's being able to just see what the answer is. And con-natural judgment at least is something cl close to that. But you can't help us. Okay. Thanks, anyway. Maybe a point complementary to this one in being in some ways the opposite. Um, he means contradictory, but he's just so kind, he says complementary. No, as, 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 as you will see, it, it's going to be uh, complementary and in no way contradictory. But, uh, and it's in fact related directly to the point, that text that you point to where St. Thomas says that a certain kind of knowledge comes through love because one is united. In Hebrew, the regular word for sexual union between man and woman <coughs> is no. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. That's how the text reads. John Paul in The Theology of the Body makes a lot of that where the seeming poverty of Hebrew language that doesn't have a separate word for sexual intercourse um, is at the same time a richness that by a union of love one comes to know another person in a way in which the other person can't possibly know themselves. In some respects, of course, each person knows himself or herself better, but there is a respect in which I know my wife in which I can't know myself, and nor any other man. At least I don't wish to. But all, all knowledge is based on relationality, finally. I mean, that's Adam in the second narrative of Genesis, uh, he, he's, he doesn't know himself until he sees Eve. He needs right. that relationality. And even with, with, with general knowledge of things and ideas, uh, there, has, there has to be fundamentally a relationality where there's an entering into and, um, and in order for true knowledge to, to happen. All right, this gives me another chance then. Uh, 
Yeah, because back he to my know something. Yeah, back to my point was that the knowledge has to be coupled with lived experience, as Dr. Savage said earlier. So what Dr. Wallstein said is he knows his wife as lover because he has lived the experience of being loved by her. She's never had that experience, right? She's not been loved by herself the way he's been loved by her, is what I would want to draw out there. So, fortunately, yeah, right. That's what I mean. So, the you know when I said you know the 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 man cannot know what it is to be woman because he doesn't have the lived experience. So, you know, in our culture, we might have a man who says, "But I'm a woman on the inside," or "I feel like a woman on the inside." <laughs> well, if he's never had a cycle, he doesn't know what it feels like to be a woman. First of all. And if he's never gotten out of the shower and seen a female body in the mirror, he doesn't have all the lived experiences of femininity. So he doesn't have that knowledge to even make that judgment. But yeah, in, in Adam's case, he was able to love and experience himself as a lover, but also to experience himself as the beloved of Eve. That, that, that's what he needed in terms of, of knowledge in that relationship. Well, because he's naming, he's naming all the animals, but he hasn't named himself. He can't name himself until he knows himself in relation to Eve. Right, and he didn't love the animals, not even the dogs. He wasn't a dog lover or something like that. <laughs> I have to add something from Dietrich von Hildebrand just to mix it up a bit. <laughs> um, because he says actually that a man will see into a woman in ways that uh, another woman would not, and a woman will see into a man in the same way. He actually suggests that um, women should have men, spiritual directors, and so on. So um, I think what you just said is really right, um, and I do. Um, but this fact that we're complementary to each other does allow us to see, I think, like you were talking about, both of you, all of you, that, that this um, distinction or difference enables me to see more, my husband, let's say, more, well, more impartially, no, probably that's not the right word, but you know, to see, to see what he needs because in ways that he doesn't know, and he, and vice versa, do you, do you know what I mean? And I, I just think that's really an important feature uh, that, we sh that you know, we should add to because um, we really do need each other in order to come to know ourselves, yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Oh, yeah, no, a guy. Okay. A guy. Stand up. <laughs> Ladies first. You can get okay. in line. <laughs> get in line. He's next. All right. Go ahead, Kim. We'll call on him if necessary. Okay. okay. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Um, so there seems to be more and more nowadays a lack of distinction between male and female dress. So how do we express our femininity specifically in fashion in today's culture and society? So I, I gave a talk about 10 years ago in New York um, at a fashion conference actually, and Oscar de la Renta was the headliner along with Covadonga O'Shea who then was the editor of Vogue Spain. I don't know if she still is or not. And it was for fashion writers, um, uh, designers, and advertisers. But they wanted somebody to come in and kind of do the philosophical aspects of beauty. So I got tagged with that. Um, I, th I think that 
it's, it's very challenging, and, and I gave a talk similar to this at World Youth Day in Toronto, and the first, there were like 50 girls lined up, and the same question, they all had the same question, is where are we supposed to go shopping? You know, this is really, I mean, I, I, I know this is not as, as highbrow as the conversation has been so far at this conference, but it is difficult to figure out how to go, where to do this, and, and so, uh, where to shop, I mean. Um, I, I, and I think that, I mean, for me, the principle is, are, are you showing, are you revealing the person or something else? And, and crudely put, I've said it's whether or not you can arouse a man. And that, that's the, really the measure of our fashion right now for women, including very, very young girls. Um, and the way that you're dressed does that arouse a man rather than revealing a person. And in the breakout session we had before, I referred to a painting of um, Dante in Florence. And, you know, he, um, in his poem, Vita Nova, he talks about Beatrice, and he says that she was looking up and I at her. So Beatrice was looking at God, and, and her beauty drew him to God. And so in this painting that's done by, an, I believe it's an English author, artist, I forget his name, maybe you'll remember, but um, there's a, there, Dante standing on the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, and so these three women are walking towards him, personifying, well, there's Beatrice, uh, personifying paradise, dressed in yellow, a woman in blue, uh, personifying purgatory, and a woman in red, personifying hell. And hell is, she is just, she's just this really voluptuous creature, and she's looking right at Dante, you know? And, be, uh, excuse me, purgatory, she's a little less voluptuous, you know, but she's looking at Dante. And Beatrice is looking up, and Dante is looking at her. And so, and I found this on a postcard, anyway. But it was the encapsulation of this poem that I had found by Dante. And okay, so I'm gonna let him handle that for a second. But I think it's really revealing, are, are you revealing the person? Are you revealing? Henry Holiday, 1884. Yes. Henry Holiday, 1884. So, um, and, and I think there, so there's, there has to be a principle, and that is, are you revealing the person, or are you trying, I mean, Jermaine Greer in the 1990s talked about, she, so she's the Australian author of The Female Eunuch, and, you know, one of the diehard feminists, and she took issue with a lot of the feminists in the 90s because she said that there was a new feminism that was emerging, and she called it the lipstick feminism, basically women that used their, their beauty, their sexual attractiveness to control and to, to, to get what they wanted, to, to dominate, to have power. Pardon? Manipulate. Manipulate, thank you. And so, again, I think it's a principle. Are you using it to reveal the person or are you using it as a means to control other people? And one of the best um, thing, one of the most interesting things I've heard on modesty is with regards to men because we don't, I think women frequently don't realize how it is that how we dress affects men. And I just had an experience with a 13-year-old niece that reminded me of this. Um, we're just we're not on the same wavelength as men. And so he, this priest described immodesty as a type of, of rape on men, because when a woman dresses immodestly, that's the, the, it's almost a physical as, assault on his senses, on a man's senses. And so again, it's a very personal decision um, how you dress. I mean, I can't, I, I, I'm very bad at putting out checklists for people. Anybody that's been to my breakout sessions already knows that. Um, but I'll give you principles 
And, and I think it is really important. I think beauty is important because it, it draws people towards the good. And as I said earlier this afternoon, hopefully that beauty on the exterior is pointing to an interior beauty. And, um, and but, but this should all be a sign of something that reveals the person, the human person, who is this wonderful woman that's you. Can I, I'd like to add something. This will be kind of a stretch, but um, Aquinas has this principle of commensuration where he says that my body and my soul are actually meant for one another. There's no male and female souls out there waiting for bodies to inhabit or anything like that. We're the same species, but I have my soul and my body. And I just that, thought that was so freeing because that means that the potentialities that come with my particular soul are mine and my body is, to, is somehow designed to live those out. To, to actualize them. This is really cool. So why am I telling you this? Well, I want to draw a connection between this and getting your colors done. Believe it or not. That, you know, when my husband and I got married, he thought I was beautiful, but he said, you know, the way you're dressing somehow isn't revealing your beauty. You should get your colors done. My mom always... <laughs> that isn't exactly how he put it, but it was close enough. So my mother had always told me that I should wear pink. And I was always drawn to olive green and things like that. You know, does everybody, you don't know what it means to get your colors done? I did. Oh, oh, I'm dating myself. Okay, you can actually, I've been doing it all day. It's inevitable. But you can actually go places where they will give you a, they'll, they'll analyze your skin tone and they'll give you a series of patches of cloth materials will show you what colors will look best. Pia's got hers with her. This is impressive. That was a gift from my aunt when I, I yes. yeah, okay. in college. Okay, she, so she could not stand the way I dressed. <laughs> yeah, this was amazing. So we I need a new breakout session. Could we have an emergency breakout yeah. session now? <laughs> Wait, I'm not, I'm not done. I'm not done. No, that's okay. That's all right. Just let me, this won't be too long. But this is actually kind of interesting to me because my mom had always said, here's the colors that you should wear. And I said, okay. And I, my eyes would gravitate toward olive green, but then I would say, no, I can't wear that because my mom told me I wear pink. Well, I don't wear pink. I wear, I'm an autumn, okay? You're be a, one of the four seasons. And I started, now I know exactly how to shop. I don't look for styles, I look for colors and fabrics. And the, the, the connection is that there's something about me that I need to fully appreciate every aspect of myself, and the colors that I wear um, make me show up. I mean, you may be judging right now that what I wore, I don't know, <laughs> saying, oh, are you kidding? That's not, you know, you obviously haven't learned, learned your lesson. I don't know, but, but I mean, to be honest, it changed my sense of self in a way, I have more confidence. Is this stupid? I don't know. Is this stupid? Okay. So I, I think that there's a, there is a way in which we can find our particular style of dress that reflects who we are. Um, or we can try to imitate men. Like when I was in, I used to work in the corporate world. I did for a long time actually in business. And all the women were wearing those little suits and those little ties. You know, I never did that. I thought it was stupid. <laughs> and so you really, you, I think it's an absolutely, completely legitimate question to ask and to, um, to consider how to dress so that I present myself in, 
you know, as I am, as I wish to be seen by others. So I would say go get your colors done and that would be a good start. Okay. Uh, I'll agree with that. Every, every girl should get her colors done. Um, I, I would like to say that I think that it's unfortunate that our society has a tendency to define beauty in ways that I think are very narrow. You know, there's a very, um, you know, there's almost this kind of prescription of what a woman is supposed to look like. And I, I think that's really unfortunate. And what I think that every woman ought to do is come to recognize how much she is loved by God and seen as beautiful by God and then dress with that kind of confidence. Dress like I know that I am a beautiful woman in God's sight. And I, I think that right there will give you a lot of, um, a lot of sense of, of should I buy this outfit or not buy this outfit. Just to, since we've got the estrogen going. Uh, <laughs> I have to say that one of the most elegant and most beautiful women that I ever saw was a woman who was probably in her 60s on the large sides and side, and she was so well dressed. It was, and, and it wasn't, I'm not saying she was well dressed in terms of haute couture, all right? But everything was so carefully put together, and her hair, and her makeup, and everything. And she was just absolutely lovely. And you could have stuck, you know, a size double zero, triple zero, 15-year-old dressed from wet seal beside her, and this other woman would have, hands down, you would have said that she was far more beautiful and, and more feminine, and, you know, she was in her 60s and definitely not a size zero, not anywhere close, but it was the way in which she presented herself, and it's just every aspect of her was simply lovely. I think a word that has been brought up a number of times in the past couple of days is the word mystery. And I think a woman needs to understand the mystery that she is, needs to pr be protective of the mystery that she is, and understand, this has been hinted here, that her behavior has consequences on the opposite sex, even at the physiological level. Uh, we are our brother's keeper, and we have an obligation to maintain that respect towards self, to protect that mystery in order to keep others from falling into sin because of our own behavior. So I think if a woman focuses on that aspect of mystery, what is a mystery? It's obviously something that not everybody should have access to, it's something that needs to be protected. And therefore, in the way a woman dresses in terms of decency, in terms of beauty, in terms of what she allows to be seen externally, especially from the perspective of men who are very visual, um, that is a very important aspect. If I could add a little story about this at ITI in Gaming, in Theology of the Body, we had a debate about clothing and one of our students, a male student, pardon? Optional or not? It was part of the class. It, it, it arose in the class. And 
one of the students, one of the male students, was a bit hard on the women. So in the next class, none of the women showed up. But 15 minutes later, they all came in with burkas on. <laughs> and, and he was brilliant. He, he, uh, Pagliarini. Uh, he looked up and said, what's this, my harem? Which is very interesting because a burqa, from a certain point of view, is the most modest dress you can possibly wear. But it is the kind of dress worn in a culture in which, far from protecting the mystery of which a, a woman is master herself. Women are, in fact, uh, demeaned by polygamy. So it's, it's more to protect, in a way, the private property of the husband that uh, this is done. It's not an expression of her own beauty, and it's exactly the depth of that beauty that helps men. Uh, it's a mistake to think that feminine beauty as such is the problem. The problem is only, as it were, transmitting one wavelength of that beauty, only the sexual erotic wavelength and cutting out the rest. The, the Deeper beauty protects rather than threatening. Well, first I'm wondering if I'm the only one thinking we're only having this conversation because of original sin, and there was no clothing or fashion or laundry before the fall. But uh, yeah, but uh, secondly, I would add, I think what, you know, get back in touch with theology of the body, which everything we're saying is relevant to it. Maybe what you're experiencing is our culture is so concupiscent that it can only oscillate between what he would call shamelessness, a willingness to be used and erotic and arousing, just go for it, or shame, which is fear of being arousing and so hiding in that fear. And in fact, the burqa really is a hallmark of shame. You're afraid, you wear the burqa because you're afraid or your husband's afraid that you might arouse someone. That's shame, fear. And uh, it really does take grace to arrive at the medium, which is to be without shame in the negative way, but also retain it in the positive way. So I think you can maybe interpret what you're seeing in your own culture as knowing only the two extremes. Shamelessness, just go for it, be arousing, or go to the other extreme, lest you be arousing out of fear of what you might communicate about yourself or do to others or whatever. And, and again, that's concupiscence though, to have either of those extremes. Yeah, and the, and the burqa, I mean, frequently it's used not so much to protect modesty, to, but to keep the woman objectified only for her spouse. And anything goes under the burqa. That's okay. Um, and, and because if it's, if it's only the husband that's going to see it, that's okay. And it can, uh, it can be all sorts of things that are not about revealing the beauty of the woman, but simply about objectifying her. And so to, it, it just... It, it doubly, well, anyway, I don't like the burqa. 
And so, <laughs> but the fact that it, it, it serves to keep her even more as an object mm -hmm. and objectified in the most personal relationship that she could be in. I mean, a spousal relationship, to be objectified in the spousal relationship is chilling, I think. I saw a segment on 2020 in which they said that Fredericks of Hollywood has more sales in Saudi Arabia than in America, because as she said, anything goes under the burqa. Yeah. Thank you. There was the guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Masculine genius. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dave Deschiel. And just a side note before my main question for Dr. Newton, that fundraiser where the couples were against each other and they were answering trivia questions, the women did do slightly better than the men. And so many of you have spoken about a particular aspect of the feminine genius that you've described in different ways sort of as receptiveness, receptivity. And it seems like a very abstract concept, so I was just wondering if any of you can help elucidate just more practical, concrete aspects of what this receptivity is. Uh, John Paul II, in the Theology of the Body, the one place where he talks about a specific male responsibility is the place where he talks about the woman being a gift for the man. So the principle, the, the, the main character of the man in the relationship is a receptive one in the sense that he is the recipient of the gift. The woman, and this seems to be true in the way in which relationships between men and women work now, and been true through the ages, the man can ask the question, will you marry me? But the first definitive word comes from the woman, yes or, or no. Um, she can say no, but if she does say yes, that's the first definitive word. It's a word of gift in which the man is in the first place a recipient. So John Paul would disagree with describing the woman as in the first place, um, or at, at least from that aspect, there may be other aspects where it's legitimate. From that fundamental position of the man as recipient of the gift, he argues that it's a responsibility of the man to ensure the balance of the gift, that is, to give himself as radically as the woman does. There's a text by Nietzsche where Nietzsche, in a way, says the direct opposite. Well, I can kind of follow up a little, I suppose. Um, I think it's really important to realize that both men and women are both active and receptive. Yeah. Um, 
like I said in my talk, I think I mentioned it in passing that, um, but I didn't really have time to explain the metaphysical principle behind it. Um, if we're meant to be in relationship and we are all in our essence, in our natures, re relational beings, because we, we are made in the image of a God who is relational, then we have to have both principles somehow, because in order to give or in order to receive, I have to give, in order to give, I have to be able to receive. I mean, it's reciprocal, right? And so as a recipient of the gift, I'm receptive. As a giver of a gift, I'm active. Now how could this be? Because as we know, it's a sound philosophical principle that something can't be in the effect unless it is first in the cause. Well, what's the cause of this? Where would it come from? And my argument is that the soul is receptive in relation to God and active in relation to the body. So, you know, this is, in my own work in the seminary, this is a question that comes up a lot, actually, one way or the other, that the men are concerned that by being, trying to be more receptive to the life of grace, somehow they're embodying some kind of a feminine thing. How does this work? So that principle has served me well. You know, that's not why I, I didn't, like, invent it to solve the problem, but I, I think it's really essential because don't you think that even though we all know we need to express more definitively and work harder on understanding the masculine genius, obviously there's a, that, there's a bit, something missing there. Yeah, we made a stab at it this weekend, but we can't forget that men have feelings, that they are, they are loving fathers, they know how to hug, and, right? And so, you know, um, the receptivity of men is a really profound thing that it's actually, well, what might define him is his generativity, in essence. What makes him complete is that he's also receptive. A man that's only always doing stuff um, becomes empty and, in, and you know, sterile, right? So, I, I don't know. That isn't maybe getting exactly at what you asked, but it seems like an important thing to remind us all about. If I could read it to you, I have it now in, in, in front of me. Despite every concession I'm willing to make to the monogamous prejudice, I will never admit the claim that men and women have equal rights in love. These do not exist. The reason is that man and woman, each of them, understand something different by love, and it is one of the conditions of love in the two sexes that the one sex does not presuppose in the other sex the same feeling and the same concept love. What the woman means by love is clear enough. Complete gift, not mere giving with soul and body, without reserve or reservation, rather with shame and horror at the thought of a gift that might be subject to special clauses or conditions. In this absence of conditions, her love is thus a faith. Woman has no other faith. The man, when he loves a woman, wants precisely this love from her and is therefore for his own person himself as far away as can be from the presupposition of feminine love. 
supposing, however, that there should also be men to whom the desire for total gift is not foreign. Well, then they simply are not men. A man who loves like a woman thereby becomes a slave, while a woman who loves like a woman thereby becomes a more perfect woman. A woman's passion in its unconditional renunciation of rights of her own presupposes precisely that on the other side there is no equal pathos, no equal will to renunciation. For if both renounce themselves out of love, what would come to be from this? Well, I don't know. What? Perhaps an empty space? Woman wants to be taken, accepted as a possession, wants to dissolve into the concept of possession, possessed. Therefore, she wants one who takes well, that's active, not receives, takes, who does not give himself and give himself away, one who, quite on the contrary, is supposed to be made richer in himself by what the woman gives herself as, namely, for him as an increase in strength, happiness, and faith. The woman gives herself away, the man takes more to add to himself, I do not see how one can get over this natural contrariety by means of social contracts, not even with the sincerest will for justice. Desirable as it may be not to place continually before one's eyes the harshness, terror, enigma, and immorality of this antagonism. For love, thought of whole, great and full, is nature, and as nature, it is in all eternity something immoral. And we wonder where the feminists got their, started with their angst. Yeah. If you read that, no, you want to get you, angry. But if you, you and if you read angry. the feminist thinkers of that time, what they're responding to, and how it all dovetails into the gender theory, I mean, no wonder they're angry. Yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Actually, we are out of time. So please join me in thanking our panel speakers. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.